If you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter 5. We have uh, been in the book of John since August, and it's June, and we're in John chapter 5 today. So, praise the Lord for his word. We're going to read uh, up through verse 16. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was at Jerusalem a sheep market, a pool, which in the Hebrew tongue is Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the movement of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first of the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there, which had, a, had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie, and knew that he had now a long time in that case, saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but why I am coming, another steps in down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and he took up his bed, and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It's the Sabbath day, it's not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said to me, Take up thy bed and walk. When they asked, What man was it that said to thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterwards, Jesus, finding him in the temple, and said to him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus. And sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. We see at the beginning of John, there's an introduction followed by a beginnings of some pictures. What is happening in Jesus that's showing that Jesus is God? And then through the whole section from chapter 2 to chapter 4, he starts meeting people and he has an encounter with. Nicodemus and the woman at the well, um, and then then the uh, nobleman's son that we saw last week. Um, here we have another miracle, and there's very few miracles in the book of John. Uh, you'll see many more in Matthew, many more in Luke, but there are very few. He doesn't he doesn't show lots and lots of the miracles of Jesus. There's only a few, and this is one of them. But we see that this isn't the focus of this chapter. We're going to see that there's something happening. The winds are blowing, and there is movement, uh, and you're going to see that there, there's stuff within the leadership of the Jewish people where there is hostility that is growing towards Jesus. And Jesus will eventually be completely rejected. He'll be rejected nationally, and he'll be rejected personally by most of the people that he encounters. So you see that... You see that during the time that Jesus is in the Gospels, when we read the Gospels, it's absolutely amazing. There's nothing like Jesus. Uh, there are crowds of thousands of people that follow him around all over the place. He heals 
everybody that he meets, he, he, everybody that comes to him, he'll meet. There's hardly any sick people in the country at the time of Jesus's ministry because he's healing vast numbers of people. He's performing miracles. He's raising the dead. And when you think of the fact that at the end, when he died, there were only 120 people in the upper room that were together after the crucifixion. There were only 120 disciples. So when you see in the book of Acts in chapter 1, there are 120 there. And then in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about the, the resurrection and that after the resurrection, Jesus showed himself to the 12 and then he showed himself to 500 people at once. And those were the only witnesses that Jesus had. He had thousands and thousands and thousands of people following him on a daily basis. And there were only several hundred people that were actually disciples of his at his death. Most of the people will reject him. And you're going to see that nationally, the, the Jewish people rejected him. And you, you can't really see, when you look at Jesus in the, in the detail as we have been over the past months, and we look at him verse by verse and how he treats people, and how, he, how kind he is, and how, what compassion he has, and his brilliance, and just what his heart looks like. It is really amazing when you back up and realize that he was rejected by everybody, that no one wanted what he had to, to offer. No one, no one really cared. He will always have crowds because they want to see the spectacular you have somebody who's dead and he's resurrected right in front of your face and people will come to see that. They want to have huge feedings. They want to have um, speeches like that no one else had ever talked. They were interested in stuff like that. But in terms of turning to him the way that Jesus requires, very few people are more than just thrill seekers. And you're gonna see that starting in chapter five, six and seven, that is where John is turning to. We're now going to see that there's a, there's a different wind blowing. And we're going to see that Jesus is going to be rejected. In chapter 5, he's in Jerusalem again. And he's rejected in Jerusalem. In chapter 6, he's back in Galilee. And he'll be rejected in Galilee. And in chapter 7, he's back in Jerusalem. And he's going to be rejected again in, in Jerusalem. Even to the point where it builds to, to a crescendo at the end of chapter uh, 7. Uh, where the whole nation is basically after his blood, that the, the leaders have decided that he must die, that, he is, he, that they can't tolerate him anymore. So we're going to see that in this, this section, uh, in this time where Jesus was, was the preacher, very few people were born again. It was a very unusual thing to be born again, though there were evidences of it. And to think that so few were born again, but people like the Samaritan woman, so low and so unusual, why her, that God would, would reach down and save people? Uh, you have to realize that that's exactly what's happening now, that God is reaching down and saving. But the, the vast crowds are not coming to him, and they never will. So you do minister to your family. You do share the gospel with your loved ones, you share the gospel with your friends and your neighbors and your enemies. You do. And God does make life happen where there's death. He absolutely does. But God is sovereign. 
God determines what he's going to do, and he chooses as he pleases. And we're going to see that even in this very compassionate section where he is meeting a man who's been sitting in a dirty mat on a sidewalk for 38 years, Jesus is as kind and compassionate as he can be. There was a scad of people at that place. It was filled with people. And he comes to that one man, and with no faith on that man's part, he had no idea who Jesus was. Jesus heals him. So you, you have to realize that God is in control of this world, and we've turned to God for mercy, and we have, we have great confidence in his compassion because he showed it to us. And if he can show it to us, he can show it to anyone. There's no one outside of God's ability to, to help him. Uh, but very, very few people come to him. But God gets, to, God gets to, to do and show himself as he pleases. And he's going to show himself in this man's healing. We're going to look at it. So let's start with the first five verses. This is, this is John chapter 5, and we'll go from verse 1 to 4. After this, there was a feast to the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there at Jerusalem by the sheep market, a pool, which in the Hebrew tongue, Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, and withered. Now I'm going to pause there. At that place, you have most of the, old, the oldest Greek manuscripts that we have stops there. And it does not talk about the angel stirring the water. It's not there. In fact, if you were to go, I don't know what uh, Bible you carry, but all of the modern translations will either put a parenthesis there or simply go from verse 3 to verse 5. And you'll see a verse 3 in your Bible, you'll see a verse 5 in your Bible, and there won't be a 4. So there, there are probably a, a dozen of the modern English translations that won't because the oldest manuscripts do not have this. In fact, I read a, uh, one of the church fathers yesterday named Tertullian, and he was from 2nd century, so one of the very earliest of the writers, Christian writers. And he, in a book on baptism, mentions this that people at the time thought that an angel would trouble the waters. And he mocked at it, which is very interesting that there was, that the, that there was this idea that the angel would trouble the waters, that evidently there was a pool and there was an intermittent spring that fed that pool. There was an artesian well, like every one of us have seen artesian wells. Well, the water will gurgle and spurt and then come in and, and come in and fill it up. But at this place, you do, have a, you do have a textual issue. And there are several in the Bible like this to where the, the King James, which is based upon a version from the 1500s, is different from the oldest ones. So in these cases, I always read it. But I always pause and say, okay, I am never in any doubt of God's word. But I'm not holding to a certain version and calling this God's word and not anything. We have what God has left us, and we do our very best to try to dig to the very best so that we know exactly what the Bible says and what it does not say. So I just wanted to tell you that. There's a, there's a parenthesis here from, from verse 3 to verse 4. So it says, uh, withered, uh, there are multitude of impotent folk of blind, halt, and withered. 
and then that, the, the parentheses is waiting for the movement of the water for an angel came down and troubled the water and whoever stepped in the water first was made whole of whatever disease he had. Now it's, it's without any doubt that the man thought this was true because they were all laying there. So you have, this is in the upper uh, northeast corner of the, of the city. There's a, a city wall around the whole, the whole town and then there is a portico, so basically a colonnade with kind of an overhang and you've got a pool here. Nehemiah mentions this pool in chapter 3 of Nehemiah called the Sheep Pool or the Sheep Gate and essentially it was just a, it was just a, uh, a spring that filled, a, a, filled a, like a big bathtub. And around this, uh, on, the, on the plaza, around this, underneath the columns were a lot of sick people thinking as best they could, if they could simply beat the other people to the water, that they would be healed. And I just think that's as pathetic as it can possibly be. That, that kind of a strange competition that you would be the first one in the water so that you could be healed and all the other people would have to wait to some other time. And here is a man who has been there for 38 years. Now, 38 years. 38 years ago, it was the summer of 1985. I don't know if you remember 1985, but 38 years ago, I was a freshman in college. I had a job. I knew I know what my little job is. I made $2 an hour at my job. Like, can you imagine 38 years ago, the June of 1985, laying down on a mat beside a pool and waking up there this morning and had been there every day since? so weak that you couldn't get up, either as a paralyzed man, either he was paralyzed or he was so weak that he couldn't move, and he had no one to help him. He simply just stood there. He, he lived as people, uh, he begged, and um, people would give him whatever, and he would eat and just live the most miserable life. And Jesus comes there in amidst that throng of people. It was a festival, and Jesus was down for the festival. And he just walks, and there's just scads of people just roaming around like ants. And he walks over to this man, and this man doesn't know anything about Jesus, doesn't know anything, doesn't have any faith in Jesus, doesn't try to get Jesus to do something, doesn't believe that Jesus can do anything for him. And Jesus goes up to him and asks the most absolutely absurd question. Wilt thou be made whole? So Jesus walks to this man and says, do you want to get better? And immediately, I guess if you think really, really quickly, you would just go, of course. But then you stop and go, well, Jesus doesn't ask questions for silly reasons. So you would think you need, okay, take it seriously. Do you want to get whole? I, I think that's a very important question. Do you want to get better? Do you want to change? Do you want things to be differently or you don't want them to be different? Are you in a situation to where whatever is in your life, you can't change it? but you would want to change it? Or are you there and you're okay with it? You've come to terms with the fact that you lay on a mat all day beside a pool and that you can't get up because nobody's there to help you, but other people always get into the water first. I don't know what, what that would look like. But Jesus asks the question, and I think in some ways he's asking the question, first of all, to get the man's attention. The man has to look at him. He, in the question, is offering healing. Otherwise, he's being cruel. Either he's, he's, he's bringing to mind <clears throat> the person's need, 
so that he focuses again on his need. In some way, he did that with the Samaritan woman. He showed the woman's sin, which was her woman's, that woman's need. He brings it to mind. This is the guy's infirmity, that this infirmity needs to be dealt with. Is he willing to have it dealt with? I mean, this man hasn't done anything. He hasn't participated in society at all for all for 40 years. Now, what does it mean? If, like, are, are you willing to change? Are you going to contribute? Are you going to get up and go to work every day? Are you going to, like, things are going to change for you. Do you want to get better or do you not want to get better? Do you want to stay what you're doing or do you want to get better? Jesus asks that question. And I believe he asked that question to me. I think he has. He's asked that question. I, God, is, God is the kindest being in the universe, and he knows everything at all. He knows completely everything. So as he deals with you, now people will always put him at arm's length. People don't want to deal with God. People don't want to deal with the questions that they know are from God. But Jesus comes up to this man, uninvited, unseek, sought for, and asks, do you want to get better? More than anything, I think it shows that Jesus has compassion on him, that he cares, that he comes to you. I don't know. There's scads of people coming to Jesus. Oh, do this, do this, do this. How many, pe how many thousands of people were healed of their diseases? How many people, but yet 120 disciples in Jerusalem at the end of all of that? How fickle. We're all fickle. But Jesus comes to this man and asks, do you want to get better? I wonder how long it took the guy to, to say something because he immediately doesn't look. So you think, think, if I know that God is speaking to me, do you want to get better? I know that God is only asking that so that I could get better. Because Jesus looks at me with the intent of helping me. He doesn't look at me with the intent of making fun of me. He wants to help me. So, But this man doesn't know that. So he, he's thinking, well, maybe Jesus will... Help him into the water. I'll wait around with you this afternoon. I'm not, I don't, I'm not doing anything. I'll sit around, and if the water starts bubbling, I'll help you into the water. Maybe that's what he thought he was doing. But, so he looks at Jesus at least. But instead of answering yes or no, or I don't want to get better, or I like being a victim, or I like being this way, uh, I'm used to it, or no, I would, I would have anything in the world if I could not be sick like I'm sick. But instead... He shows his faith, but he shows his faith in the pool. He said, sir, I don't have anybody to help me. When the water is troubled, it, I try to step in, but someone always steps in before me, and I'm never able to do it, and I always have to go back to my mat, and I have to wait it again, and I'm never, ever going to get better. It's interesting. Jesus doesn't fish with him. He doesn't say, oh, well, what about me? Or what about turning to the Lord? Or what about putting your faith in me? No, Jesus just sovereignly just says, take up your bed and walk. He looked at the man, and as he looked at him, he commanded him. And as he commanded him, certain things happened in his heart. Now, this is an amazing passage because Jesus is speaking directly to a man who doesn't know anything about him, and doesn't know that he is expecting anything. But as he is commanding him, he's doing something there. Jesus' words are powerful. Jesus' words are the same words that created light. So when we look at Genesis, and Genesis says, let there be light, that was Jesus Christ speaking. Let there be light. 
and instantly there was light. Light simply just started being. Light was shining at his commandment. And here is the same person who's speaking to this man who's been an invalid for 40 years. And he speaks and he says, stand up, take up your bed and walk. And as he did it, as he commanded him, two things were happening. First of all, the man was healed. But secondly, and I think even more importantly, that man's heart changed. That man now knew to trust him. When Jesus works in your life, Jesus' work in your life actually gives you the encouragement to trust him. It's not that he simply just says, if you'll trust me, life will be fine for you. But if you don't trust me, life will not be fine for you. As he spoke, the words themselves gave him encouragement. And the man stood to his feet. The man stood up. I, I just think that is an amazing thing. The, the power of Jesus' words, I just have to think about it. He, he empowers and he heals in the, same, in the same sentence. Now, it says at that verse, and the same day was the Sabbath. When you read it, it doesn't seem like it's very much. This, this is the end of verse 9. Jesus said to him, rise up, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day, it was the Sabbath. It seems like it's just incidental that, that, that John is just mentioning it. But what we're going to see is that little phrase, and on the same day that was Sabbath, it will eventually lead to Jesus' death. It will start a crescendo that will eventually lead to complete rejection by the whole government the whole, the whole society, the religion will all reject Jesus and it will lead ultimately to Jesus' uh, death on a Roman cross for blasphemy, which is interesting, that Jesus would be, would be put to death for blasphemy. The very thing that I'm guilty of, that Jesus, of course, was never guilty of, is, but, but it's because of this Sabbath. All right, so this morning we read, this, we read the, the Ten Commandments from Deuteronomy. The Ten Commandments are in two places. They're in Exodus chapter 20 and in 35 of Deuteronomy. Uh, in fact, the word Deuteronomy means the second reading of the law. We're reading the law again right before Moses brings the people into the, into the, peop into the kingdom. And they read the law again. And the whole first part of that is all on the Sabbath. Half of that reading of the Ten Commandments was on the Sabbath day. That the Sabbath day is to be kept holy and you're not to do any work on it. So it's interesting that, that really the big contention between the, the religious leaders and Jesus was that Jesus refused to observe their legalism. He refused to observe their man-made ordinances. He understood what God's law was. He understood it perfectly and he kept it flawlessly, impeccably. But this this bunch of rules, he was, he was just, I'm going to say that he wanted to have compassion on this man. He did. He wanted to show compassion. But at the same time, he wanted to, to bring the nation to the legalism that they were, that they were under, that they, he wanted to bring it to their attention, that what you're doing is you're, you're basically, uh, you can't do anything on the inside. So you're forcing stuff on the outside because you can't do anything on the inside. False religion always does that. 
false religion always makes the outside lots and lots of rules that you have to obey because it can't change the inside. It can't make you different. It can't make you clean. It can't make you love God when you don't. And so, so Jesus is basically confronting it. So this is, this is verse 10. The Jews therefore said unto him that were cured, it's the Sabbath day. It's not lawful for thee to carry their, your bed. Now, Jesus has just slipped into the crowd, and here's the guy. He stands up, and he picks up his dirty straw mat that, can you imagine, the squalor? And he, that's his only possession. He picks it up, and he just starts, I don't even know where he's going. I don't even think he knows. He just starts walking, and immediately he's caught by the, by the hall monitor. So they're like, what are you doing? Now, when you think we read together what God required, that you're not to work, whatever your labor is, you're not to work, and you are not to make other people work. You're not to make your servants work. You're not even to make your animals work. You are to completely stop work because the whole idea of rest is that you're stopping your work. That's what resting means. You've, you've stopped your work. And we're going to see that the whole idea of rest, the whole idea of Sabbath is Jesus itself. Jesus himself is, I stop working. I don't try to please God. I'm not trying to get God to like me. I'm, I stop. I have Jesus. God loves me. I have Jesus. God accepts me. That is Sabbath. The whole idea of the Sabbath, that you would stop your toil, your labor, your incessant grabbing for stuff. Well, there, you tell me that this guy walking with his mat across the, the plaza was working. I, I'll tell you that it's not. But the, the rabbis had 39 rules that they all kind of made up around this law. 39 rules. And this was number 39. You may not carry something from one place to another. That was number 39. And God never had that as a plan. And Jesus rolls his eyes and goes, give me a break. And Jesus is, slips away, and so the guys nail him. See, Jesus, as we see this crescendo, as people will start rejecting him nationally, it, a lot of it will come together because of the Sabbath. Because they are in charge of the Sabbath, and they're the police that are enforcing it. And when Jesus says no, it's something real. It's not something external. It's not, it's not laws made by men. This is Matthew 15. In vain do they worship me. He's talking about the Pharisees. Teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. The commandments of men that they made up that God had nothing to do with, but they're saying it as, the, as though it were the same as what God had intended. God, God wrote the scriptures for our blessing and for our instruction and for our warning. And they basically wanted to make it themselves. They basically were creating it. This is from Matthew 23, which is a scathing chapter of Jesus scathing, uh, the upbraiding the, the Pharisees. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of the mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done and not let, leave the others undone. He said, this idea that you are taking the requirement and legalism, the whole idea that by doing something you're right, when really you're not right. 
you don't care this man was just healed. This man was just healed that sat there in that spot for 38 years. You don't care at all. You're mad because he's, he is carrying his, his you know, two-ounce bed with him. You're mad because it's against your rules. It's your requirements, this legalism again. Now, it's interesting that the man quickly throws Jesus under the bus. Okay? Uh, don't think people don't do that. This is verse 11. He answered and said, He has made thee whole. The same said to me, Take up your bed and walk. The guy who healed me, who, who healed me, told me to take up my bed and walk, and so I'm just doing what he told me. Well, so they, they say, the verse 12, Who is the man that said to you, Take up your bed and walk? And he that, that was healed wist not who it was. So the guy, he didn't even know. Didn't even know it was Jesus. He knew that the guy said stand and walked, and he knew that he had faith to stand and walk. He listened to his creator but didn't know it was God. He didn't know who he was talking about. He couldn't even tattle on him because he didn't know. But he, he was like, not me, not me. I didn't do anything wrong. He told me to do it. But he didn't know who it was because he himself had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Now, at the end of this, of this is a really scary passage. I don't know if your blood kind of chilled when we read it through. Jesus finds the man at the temple. I don't know of another place like it in the Bible. Jesus finds this man that he's healed, and he encounters him again on probably the same day. Now, I love it that he's in the temple. I think that's appropriate. He is in the temple to thank God for his healing, and that's exactly what he should have done. And Jesus goes to the temple, knows where he is, goes to the temple. Do you see that Jesus is his God? And he's looking into it. Remember, Jesus looks at the man and knew that he had been in that place for 38 years. Jesus is not 38 years old. He would have been sitting in that spot before Jesus was ever born. And Jesus, because he was God, knew him. He looked into him and knew who he had. He knew his situation. He knew all about it. But Jesus is not done. He healed his body, but there's more to it than that. Jesus is God. And God deals with our real selves, our real needs, not just the things we want. He doesn't give us a wish list. God, when he, when he heals us, heals us all the way to the very inside. He doesn't just heal us to the outside and then create a, a, like a cavity that's rotten on the inside. He doesn't work that way. And this man needed a lot more than being healed of his infirmity. So this is like a Jesus part two. I think this is interesting. He leaves him and then he finds him again. So here's the man in worship. Before God, thank you for healing me. Thank you for healing me. And he's giving, he's giving God honor for it. And Jesus puts his finger where the man lives. Now, God does this in our hearts privately. And I'm so glad he doesn't shout this from the rooftops. But he puts his finger where we have to have it done. Because this is our God and he is dealing with us the way we need to be dealt with. And so... He says something to the man. This is verse 14. This is still chilling to me when I read this. Afterward, Jesus finds him in the temple and says to him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. 
I would have to know that Jesus said that to even think because it almost seems snarky. There's almost like an element of, of, you know, watch out because something worse is going to happen. Except that that's what he said. This is a warning. Watch out lest something worse has happened. Now, I wrote down on my paper, what is worse than sitting as an invalid on a sidewalk for 40 years? But see, God knows that there's something worse than that. God knows. Now, all of this is now not overt. It's not written. It's not. You have to say, why would Jesus call his attention to his sin? Why? Like, do you need, does God always need to call my attention to his sin? Because he, he just healed him. You are made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. The only thing I can say is there is a relationship there's a theological relationship between sin and suffering. And you have to be really, really careful because there's a dozen scriptures that is so clear as a bell that, that just because someone is sick or just because some, there's a, an infirmity of some kind does not necessarily mean that anybody sinned. It doesn't need to be a con- that It doesn't mean that every situation has a connection. But in this specific situation, there was a connection. There was something that caused this infirmity. And there are, there are sins that express it in illness. And this man was just healed of, of, a, of something that allowed him to have su- such weakness that he couldn't stand up for 38 years. So John, three, uh, John 9 comes to mind. We'll get to John 9 where the man is born blind. And the disciples say, well... Who sinned? Did he sin? Or did his parents sin that he was born blind? And Jesus was like, neither. Nobody sinned. No. Just because you're born blind doesn't mean that it was a curse, that God is, uh, like hits the smite button on his computer. It's not like that. Um, this is from Luke 13. There were those present at the season that's, that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices. Pilate killed people while they were worshiping. And they're like, they must have been sinners. Because otherwise they would, while they were worshiping, they got killed. Well, they must have been sinners. And Jesus was like, are they any more sinners than everybody in town? And then, then he said, he said, Jesus answered, said, suppose that the Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered these things. I tell you not, except that you repent you shall all likewise perish. Or the 18 upon whom the tower of Siloam fell, slew them, do you think, because they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? Things happen to people. A tower fell on on 18 people and killed them. It is because God got them back for something? No. No. But in this man's case, there was sin that led to his suffering. And God wanted the thing dealt with. It wasn't just the suffering that was the man's problem. It was that he needed the repentance because there is, there is something far worse than physical suffering. And then Jesus knew that this man had his tied two together. So you can't, we can't look at other people and say, oh, they're sick, therefore that they're, they're sinners, God is getting them. It doesn't work that way. But in this man's case, it was related, and Jesus, as his God, knew it and put his finger and says, be careful, okay? 
Now, Paul, as he's writing at the end, when he's writing that chapter 11, when we read every uh, communion from chapter 11, at the end of chapter 11, he tells them to be careful for this cause, which, is, for, which was Paul saying the sins of the church, the sins inside the church for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. There is a relationship often. Physical sickness tied to your sins, that that it does happen, it it is connected. It's not universal, but it is. And so this man then departed, told the Jews it was Jesus which had made him whole, and therefore the the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. So we're going to move into a new section in the book of John, where John is now talking about Jesus as the persecuted. He's the one that's persecuted, the one that's chased down by people who hate him, who are trying to destroy him. And what it is is because he's putting, he's putting, he's getting too close to their center of authority in their opinion. So we'll, we'll continue with that. Let's pray. Lord, we, we dare not look up to you uh, knowing that you know all things about us but we are so comforted that we have a savior that Jesus Christ has completely forgiven us of all of our sins I just ask that we would have no secrets from you that we would not hide in our hearts anything from you that we would be open and transparent to you and willing to turn from those things that have caused us nothing but pain and are destroying us and that we would have great, great confidence in you. Thank you that you have given us a Savior. Thank you that you accept us, that all of our sins are gone. And I just ask that you give us power to live uh, clean lives in front of you and in front of others, that we might, uh, that we might win others to, to your kingdom, uh, that, that they would see your mercy. I thank you that you're, that you're merciful and great and that you're working in, in your people. And I pray that you would uh, do as you please and intend to do in our lives. And we thank you for coming to us and saving us. Uh, And we, uh, we want to say thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen.